praise God, Woody is here, uh, live and well, in the flesh. Um, you guys, uh, a lot of you know him uh, and his great, great history uh, with our chapter. He's actually one of the co-founders of our New Canaan Society chapter, along with Tom Lane. Uh, good morning, Tom. I see that he's online this morning uh, from Florida. And uh, just been really blessed uh, to have Woody um, participate, uh, serve as a leader, part of our chapter. Um, and just uh, the legacy that he helped build here. So uh, why don't we have a, a warm NCS welcome uh, to our brother. Thank you. I sent an email to Matt saying, look, I want a real BCS intro. Like none of this like nicey nice stuff. Like, you know, back in the day, we, you know, the guys would get roasted before they so speak. So, so I asked for that. So, you yeah. know, I, I appreciate you honoring my request. <laughs> I'm glad there's not too much online to, to 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 find. I do Google myself sometimes, and I do wonder who are all these other Woody Woods fans. So, it's a, you know, you think you're the only one with a with a great name like that. But, uh, it's an honor for me to speak to you guys today. Uh, I, I never take it lightly. Uh, you guys are an amazing bunch of men that have been getting together like this since 2005, 2006. And it's just such an honor that you guys are still uh, every week or every other week uh, having big speakers and little speakers like me come in and to be challenged and to listen. I figured well, I would talk about my story today. A lot of times at energy groups, uh, we ask guys uh, to share their story. I don't know how many of you guys even know me or know my story. Some of you may, some of you may not. So uh, I figured I would uh, share my story. Then I have a couple of scriptures I want to look at at the end of this, at the end of the talk today, and we're going to talk about doubt. I didn't grow up around here. I, I grew up around South Brooklyn or somewhere in there. So I grew up just south of Chattanooga, Tennessee on a dirt farm. Um, our food grew in the backyard. Get her done. Get her done. You know, we had hog killings on Saturdays. You know, you would do what you had to do to eat, right? Our, our, our garden provided food for us every week. We would can all summer and eat all winter. Uh, the little calves that were our friends became our food eventually. Uh, we grew up milking a cow to, to have milk to drink. Now we bought regular milk too, but there's nothing like fresh cow milk that when you go out and you squeeze the cow and get milk from it. Uh, you take the cream off the top and you churn for butter. Uh, some of the best, you know, the, the Kerrygold that you guys, if you've ever tried Kerrygold, it's pretty good, but compared to what you make yourself from your old milk cow is a little different because it's fresh and you know where it has come from. Our life was simple. Uh, my life today is complicated, <laughs> to say the least. My parents, uh, you know, both worked. My grandparents helped take care of us. Uh, you know, we worked in the garden all, you know, all summer and we're in school all winter and fall and, and spring. Uh, sports was a way for me to kind of 
express myself a little bit. I was not bad uh, at baseball. My dad was our baseball coach when we were 11 and 12. We actually played in the World Series two years in a row, our little county. We had about 60 kids to pick all-stars from, 60. About four teams of 12 kids or 15 or whatever, not very many kids in our little county. And we, and when I was 12, we were, we lost four games that summer. We were 48 and 52. Little, bunch of little guys, and we played some really, really good baseball. We didn't make errors. My dad drilled us like a professional baseball team. We had hitting stations, we had fielding stations, we had running stations, and we would practice for two hours every day. We had men like you come and pitch against us and throw it as hard as they could and throw their knuckle curves and their knuckleballs to teach us how to hit some of these bigger guys. I mean, it was just insane how my dad trained us to play. And as a, as a little guy, we, when I was 11, we won the district and we won the state, and then we got to go to uh, Bartow, Florida. It's in Central Florida, Florida to play in the in the World Series. We played two games. We lost the first game two to one, and uh, our pitcher pitched a no hitter. We made a couple little errors and, and lost two to one. <clears throat> then we not lost the next game like one to nothing. I mean, it was like we were right there. Then the next year we we uh, undefeated in the district, undefeated in the state. Won the first two games in the World Series. We were the best team in the world that year. Our best player got hurt. We wound up losing the next two. Came in fifth, but. Our little baseball team was insane. Uh, we played down in Louisiana, down uh, near uh, New Orleans. And for me to get out of our little dirt farm <coughs> to go play sports, that was a, a pretty big deal. I was in public school, uh, but I knew there was something not right in my life. And my parents took me to church ever since I was a little guy. And at, at one point, I'm like, you know, um, there's, I, I'm lost. I realized that I was lost. And I didn't know what that meant too much, but I knew that I needed a Savior. I, I knew that I couldn't save myself. And I heard the message of the person that could save me. And he, he died for me. And he rose again on the third day for me. And not just for me, but for the whole world. Every person that ever lived past, present, and future. He did that for the whole world. And I wanted to I wanted that relationship with him. So when I was twelve, I went down in our little church. We had a little altar and I went down and I gave my life to him. Changed everything. My parents sent me to a a, a school kind of like a Hawthorne Christian or an Eastern Christian. Uh, cobbled together, blue collar workers worked hard their whole lives. My dad passed away at 57 years old. And I'm 55. I'm like, whoa, that's getting close. <laughs> you know, the whipping men don't live too long, right? Most of them pass away pretty early. My granddad was 29 when he died. My dad was 57. My uncle was 62. Um, so we're, there's on the, the shelf life for whipping is not real long for the men. So I get a little nervous sometimes, right? Thinking, oh my goodness, what well, you know, you got to kind of think about some stuff here. But my dad worked hard, my mom worked hard and put us through a school. And that school helped change my thinking about, you know, what we, what I could do with my life. Went to college to play baseball, had a lot of fun. I was, uh, was 
started being scouted uh, by the Cincinnati Reds when I was in the ninth grade. It's so funny. My mom, not funny, it's kind of sobering. But my mom turned 80 last week. So I went out to visit her in Ohio where my brother lives. And my brother did a little toast for her. And I said, Mom, how do you feel turning 80? She goes, that's a great question. She goes, you know, when you leave Ohio and you're in Cincinnati and you drive by the Cincinnati Reds baseball stadium, they have a sign there that says, I'm rounding third and I'm headed for home. That's how I feel. She hit 80 and she's rounding third, headed for home. Wow. In some senses, we're all headed for home. My dad, you know, his back nine started, he was about 28 years old. He died at 57, right? So halfway through his life, he's about 28. Other people, you know, are a little older. Other people are a little younger. So we have to kind of take account of our lives. So um, when I'm putting all of my life into baseball, and I thought in some senses, since I was already kind of a, a Christian, I thought baseball was going to save me. I thought baseball was going to be the thing that got me out of where I was to put me into something different. Little did I realize, or I should have known the whole time, it was not baseball, but it would have been the Lord. I had a horrific accident when I was 19 years old. I was playing baseball, oddly enough, and we were playing this team, and it was a summer league team, so... Um, I was playing left field, and this kid was not very good at the plate because sometimes you know the kids that you're playing against, and this kid wasn't very good. He couldn't hit the ball really well. So I moved in and over a little bit because he if he's going to hit it, he's going to hit it more that way instead of toward my way. And our pitcher grooved him one, like right inside, and, I mean, he turned on that ball and hit it about 350 feet down the line. We played on this field that was literally 350 feet all the way. The whole, from left field to right field, center field, everything was 350. There was a foul pole that was kind of halfway on the field. It was a steel pole fortified with concrete. And I was a pretty fast runner, and I was absolutely sprinting to try to catch this ball. And as soon as I get to the ball, I reached out and... I missed the ball. It hit off the tip of my glove. But as soon as I missed the ball, I literally crashed into that foul pole at full speed. And I crushed the whole side of my face. And I was absolutely laid out on the on the field. And my face was like in another world. Uh, my mom and dad were there. It was my sister's birthday. And... I go to the hospital, and, I mean, it was some of the most severe pain I'd ever felt when they're doing x-rays or whatever. And the doctor says, you're pretty lucky to be alive. A couple inches either way, you're dead. Like, you know, you're driving your nose bone through your brain or you're crushing your temple. You know, I, luckily I hit on, on my face. You know, it was going to do a lot of damage, right? So, uh <clears throat> literally crushed my whole face. I had to have like reconstructive surgery. I was working construction at the time and they thought I was just messing around. And they're like, you better get back to work or we're going to fire you. I was making decent money as a kid in college. Um, so I went back to work and my, 
my face was still absolutely swollen. Shut. I still had stitches. My my eye was swollen. This one was mostly swollen. When I went to work, those guys were like, we didn't realize what had happened. I'm like, well, I can't go home because I couldn't drive to work. My dad dropped me off. He's not picking me up till four, so you're gonna have to pay me all day. They're like, you just stay in the in the guard shack all day. You can't do anything. We don't want you to. I mean, it was just it was a crazy scene. When I was on my bed, I'm like on the hospital bed. I'm like, you know, Lord. I kind of want to do what you want me to do. I kind of been living my own life, doing my own thing, and I kind of want to do what you want me to do. And I, I'm like, if you'll help me get up, and I kind of meant it, but I kind of didn't. I kind of, you know, it was one of those like, hey, you know, this is going to be a cool story one day. And I didn't really follow through with it. And then my wife and I, we get married right out of college, and I'm sitting in church one one Sunday, and the speaker gives an illustration. And the illustration is uh, he's got a, a hundred sheets of paper in his hand. And it's a big auditorium. It's like um, you know, one of the big, you know, seated, I don't know, several hundred people, almost a thousand or so people. Uh, and it was packed that morning. I was sitting in the back like, you know, normal people do, right, where you don't want too much from the Lord and he you know, you don't want too much of him, and you don't want him to require too much of you, right? So you kind of sit in the in the back and just kind of halfway pay attention, right? But this guy had these hundred sheets of paper, and I was intrigued. I, I like illustrations and stories more than the messaging a lot of times. And so he goes, "I've got a hundred sheets of paper here." He goes, "I'm going to start handing them out." He handed you know out to the guys on the front row a whole bunch of paper. And he handed them another and another and another. Then he took a few sheets of paper and handed out through the rest of the auditorium. And I, he, then he asked the people that had a sheet of paper to stand up. So the people in the front stood up, and there was like one person in the choir back when churches had choirs. <laughs> one person in the choir stood up, one person in the, over here, one person over there. I don't think anybody in the balcony stood up. And I was like, what the heck's going on? And I was not even close to a piece of paper. I mean, I was like in the far, like I was way out from a sheet of paper. And he went on to explain that those people had a sheet of paper were people who had heard the gospel before and they had received the Lord as their savior. And they were going to go to heaven when they die. I'm like, okay, what about us? What about me? Right? I don't have a sheet of paper. What happens to me? That's what my thought was. And he says, if you don't have a sheet of paper, this is what it looks like in the rest of the world. If you don't have a sheet of paper, you have never heard of Jesus or what he's done. <clears throat> and you have no chance, in a sense, to go to heaven when you die because no one's ever told you the good news. And I wanted to stand up and yell, what about me? What about me? Why couldn't you, someone bring me the message because I put myself into someone's shoes who never heard this great, the greatest message has ever been told. So I put myself in someone else's shoes. It turned the tables for me a little bit. And he goes, so I'm yelling, what about me? What about me? And the speaker's like, you know, the people on the front are people that live in the U S they've heard the gospel over and over and over again hear it every week and you're unwilling to hand it out to the rest of the world. 
and I'm thinking back on my life, and I'm like, oh yeah, you, from the time you were in eighth grade, you, you know, the, the school I went to, we had chapel every day. I went to church eight days a week, literally, went five times Monday through Friday. We had Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. We never missed. And half the time, you know, every summer, at least twice a year, there were revival services. So sometimes I was in church 13 times a week. How much did I ever have been willing to hand out the gospel, right? <clears throat> so I went home and I told my wife, I said, you know what? I think the Lord wants me to go into the ministry. That was the last thing she wanted to hear. <laughs> right? See, I wasn't necessarily living a great life for the Lord. I wasn't the altar boy that I should have been. I wasn't this super, I was this kind of doing my own thing guy. But I heard the Lord speak to me, I want you. What do you do with that? I said, okay. I said, yes. I'll do whatever you want. Go wherever. Talk to anybody. Wherever. Whenever. Whatever. I'll go or I'll stay. But my life is in your hands. I released control of my life and I gave it to him. It took six years from that moment to get into the ministry because I had a lot of work to be done. The Lord had to do a work in my life. So we moved here in 2002, October 7, 2002. We just passed our 19th anniversary. I'll never forget it. We landed LaGuardia Airport. Will was five years old. And you know when you get to LaGuardia, it says, I love New York. It's got that big apple thing. You know, you go, I love that side. We're, 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 we're taxiing, and you see the high heart or high apple, New York, right there at LaGuardia. Will goes, well, I guess we're New Yorkers now. <laughs> Whoa. I'm like, I started having a heart attack. I'm like, what have I done? I brought my family, family to this place. If you remember that's when the D.C. sniper shootings were happening in October. Remember those? So it was a year after 2002. New York was a lot like it is now after the pandemic. A lot of people moved out of New York in, in 2001, 2002. A lot of people moved out over the last couple of years because of the pandemic. It feels the same to me. It feels the same way. Scary. And I moved my kids and my wife in here. And with these sniper shootings, they're saying they're going to be in New York City. So, you know, it could happen here, too. I mean, it, everybody was <coughs> terrible. <coughs> I, look, I told you I grew up on a dirt farm. Like, my friends were the cats and chickens and goats and pigs. That was our friends. I'm not, I mean, I'm not kidding. I mean, it's, we hanged out with them all the time. <laughs> brother and sister I mean we were farmers and now I'm living in a city with 25 million people in the region oh my goodness scared out of my mind but I said I'd go wherever and do whatever 
I try to make it a practice to say yes whenever I got an opportunity. So I'm walking and I'm walking around in Brooklyn and I'm realizing, you know, being a white guy from the South, nobody can still understand me, Matt. I mean, you're right. Like I still, even when I go down South now, people are like, I can't understand you. Talk like this. You know, I'm like, wow, I can't get a break. Right. Yeah. So I'm like, it's like the Lord spoke to me. You need to run a basketball tournament. I was playing basketball every day with the kids. So I asked a bunch of my friends for money. Uh, and some are on the call here today. Uh, and some are in the room today. And so these guys give money for me to run a one-day basketball tournament. Let's just see what happened. We had 128 kids show up in 2005, in August 2005. We had 20 kids say, man, I'd love to know more about what you're talking about. And I was hooked. I'm like, man, this is awesome. I talked to 128 kids in one day. I probably hadn't talked to 128 kids in three years walking around the streets of Brooklyn. Another thing was going on side by side. I'd met Tom, and he goes, hey, I'm going to this retreat up at Mohawk Mountain Lodge. Do you want to go? And see, I was commuting into the city from Glen Rock. I was riding a train every day, and I see guys just like us sitting there. They're all, it was before AirPod days, but they were sitting there with their headphones in, or they were reading the paper, and everybody was dead quiet, and everybody looked super sad. Everybody looked just tired and undone. And I had a heart for these men. The same as I had a heart for the kids that I was reaching out to in Brooklyn. I had the same kind. And so I'm like, Lord, I my brother who worked at King's College and I were talking about, man, it'd be awesome to have some kind of men's outreach in our area. And so we were praying about it together. And Tom goes, hey, like, do you want to go to a men's retreat? Well, what do you think I'm going to say? Let me go pray about it. I was already praying about it. I had already prayed about it. My only response was yes. So we drive up to the Mohawk Mountain House, and I was hooked. I'm like, man, this is the greatest three days I've had in a long time. It's a bunch of guys worshiping the Lord. You know, back then we played... Um, what is that? Tennis shoes. Oh, yeah. What is that game? Like they had a big ice. Broom ball. Funny. Guys were like slipping all around and we we're making fun of each other and smoking cigars. There was never so much smoke at Mohawk in all my life. It was so funny because they let us use one smoking room at Mohawk. That thing smelled like smoke for years. There were so many of us smoking cigars in that, in that Mohawk mountain house. And, man, it was awesome. So we were driving back from Mohawk, and Tom's like, do you want to do this more often? Well, if I was already praying about it, and I'd already said yes to this, what am I going to say? I said, yeah, let's do it. He goes, let's gather up some guys and let's meet every other week. Okay. 
I don't know too many people, but I'll call them. I'll call all the friends that I know, and I call them. And they wanted in. And that's how it started. I mean, we spent the summer. I mean, Brian was a part of that group. George McGovern, Dwayne Moeller, Andy Aran, Mark Reitzman, Tom and me. We're like, let's just hang out. And we just hung out for the summer. And Tom goes, hey, why don't everybody invite one guy to come out next week or in a month or whatever? Everybody's like, okay. <clears throat> and we're meeting in his house. And all of a sudden, it's like, hey, Ron Hutchcraft's coming to town. Brian brought Ron Hutchcraft to town. And Tom's like, we better get a bigger place to meet. And so we got the High Mountain Country Club and met. We had 75 guys show up. And Tom's like, we can't go back to my house. There's way too many people. we got to get this thing organized. So we started meeting at High Mountain. I mean, it just kind of happened. Like, I mean, it's just crazy. They call me the founder of Street to Street. I didn't find anything. I wasn't looking to find anything. I just wanted to run a basketball tournament. Call me the co-founder of BC. I don't know what I was just winning the band. I just got in the car. I just said yes. There was an opportunity. I said yes. Uh, I was reading the Bible. I'm already, you guys aren't gonna have any questioning time today. So. <laughs> <laughs> I better tell you what the Bible says. That's why we came here, right? Not to hear all this, not to hear all this stuff. There's, so this year I'm reading Jesus's life every day. I want I want to read something about him every day. So I'm reading the Gospels, yeah, you know, reading through. So I've read them a whole bunch of times, but I love them. I love these things. So if you look in, in Matthew chapter 28, so Matthew, as you know, it was a businessman, just like you guys. NCS is for business guys that want to live out their life in the work environment. This is why you come here, so you can be encouraged and challenged to live your faith in your in your place of business, at work, in front of the people you work with. At home, you do it with your family. Other groups, at church, you do it with your friends. At work, you live and show your faith to the people you work with. That's your that's your role. That's my role. That's why this place is started. Say, hey. We got to live our faith out in front of our friends, our family, but most importantly, and also our business associates so that they can know. Guess what? These guys on Wall Street need the Lord. And guys like me can't take them to them because I don't speak the language. Tom talks to me about EBITDA and investing and all this other stuff. I'm like, man, that's awesome. <laughs> I don't know what he's talking about. I have no clue. I'll even look it up on the internet. Just like that. I'm scrolling. Like, I can't even spell this stuff. But he speaks the language. You speak the language. So they're going to listen to you. Anyway, Matthew's a business guy. Like you. Now, the 11 disciples. So Matthew is telling... He tells his whole story, then he, he misses 40 whole days of all these great things Jesus did after he was resurrected. Then he goes, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him and worshipped him, but some doubted.
but some doubted. You know what I think? Matthew was one of the doubters. You know why I think so? He wrote it. How does he know what you feel? He might have known some guys might have felt like him, but he doubted. So I, I'm like, isn't there another passage of Scripture that talks about doubt? Yes, Woody, there is. <laughs> Look at James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What's the difference? I think, a sa I think a saving faith. I think before the disciples here, the Holy Spirit hadn't been given yet. He came a little bit later, and he filled their lives. And you saw what happened when the Holy Spirit came and dwelt the believers. Peter preached a message that was unbelievable. 3,000 people gave their lives to the Lord the very first day. The very first day. Those guys went from doubting to faith. And when we say yes to him, when we have a personal relationship with him, it leaves no room for doubt. You may not understand it. You may not understand how a black cow can eat green grass and give white milk and make yellow butter. I don't understand it either. <laughs> but man, it's pretty good. You might not understand how a country kid that grew up on a dirt farm in Georgia can make it in New York City. I don't understand it either. But it's more to do about him than it is to be with me. My job is to live my faith out like he's asking me to do, like he's given me the power to do, without doubting. Without doubting. Let me ask you a question. What would you do? You're praying for, for an opportunity and one comes along. What do you do? Do you say yes, or do you say, look, I got I to gotta do something else? I'm so thankful for all the times the Lord's answered my prayers. All I'm responsible to do is to say yes. I bet in this room, there's an opportunity setting before you right now. The responsibility is just to say yes, not to figure it out. He'll help you. He gives wisdom. James says it. You ask wisdom, he gives it to you. You don't have to have wisdom. You don't have it. He, he has it. You get it from him. And then where are you at lacking wisdom? You ask God for help, but when he helps you, your answer has got to be yes. So when you ask wisdom and the Lord says this, you have to do it. If you don't, you are unstable in all your ways. So as you grow up, go into your little group, you only got like 10 minutes. You guys took a lot of the time introducing me. <laughs> <laughs> Just a fun part.
exactly the fun part. So go into your group. So Matt, you're doing a great job, by the way. I'm so proud of you. I get the emails. I, I see what you guys are doing on Zoom. I know you're behind it. I know you're behind the camera and all that. I think you're doing a great job. I really do. I'm really proud of you. Well done. So a couple questions for us today. What opportunities are in your path that you need to say yes to? And then where are you lacking? Where do you need wisdom? You know, you may not have ever come to a saving faith and you still you still may be a doubter. Jesus is okay with those doubts before you say yes to him. But after you say yes to him, he wants you to grow up and say, look, I don't really want to doubt it. So anyways, talking about doubts and opportunities, okay? And then we'll come back and be done.